So imagine for a second uh, that you didn't come here this morning for worship in a, in a sermon, right? Let's say last night you were at home uh, and you got an email from the church and they had said, hey guys, what we want from you is for you to come up here at 11 a.m. tomorrow for a game, right? So you didn't come here for worship, you didn't come here for a sermon, you came here to play a game. And that's the only details we gave you. And a lot of you, maybe you're, you're attracted to mystery, right? So you're like, this is kind of ominous, and so you want to come and check it out. And so you walk in, uh, and a few of us are up here, and all the chairs are gone, and you, you come in, and there's a bowling ball, a football, a volleyball, and a soccer ball just laying on the ground in the middle of the floor here, right? And so y'all are like, it's kind of peculiar. And so you get in, the time starts, we call everybody, we're like, hey, y'all come over here uh, and just gather around. And so you come in, you're awaiting instructions, you're awaiting details. What's the objective of the game? What are the teams going to be? How do you win? And so we sit down here, we let you all come in and get kind of comfortable, and then we're like, all right, guys, you're here for a game. Go. And then we take off, and we go up on the balcony to start watching y'all. Right? You'd be sitting here, and you're like, okay. <laughs> so you're standing. Maybe you'll be a little social for a minute, right? But eventually, somebody's going to go, okay, we came here to play a game, and so I'm going to do something. So maybe we got uh, somebody, a, a quarterback in the room, right? So they grab the football. They're like, well... I know what I do with a football, so they start looking for kind of a slim, athletic, tall guy to pass it to, because they're looking for a receiver. And so they see him, and they're like, all right, so they kind of pass it over there, and then kind of dish back and forth, and then maybe somebody grabs the volleyball, and they're kind of, you know, bunting up and down and doing little sets and stuff like that, but nobody's getting violent at this point. It's just a game. But the thing is, when there's no order, there's no rules and you're just kind of doing what feels best, eventually, a bigger guy is going to go, well, I know what I used to do when I saw a thinner guy catch a football. <laughs> right? And so they're going to go for the tackle. They're running in, and they're just going to nail somebody. And you're like, okay, things just got crazy. And then somebody's going to see the volleyball getting kind of set. Right? No, it's kind of popping in there. They're like, what would happen if I just spiked it? And I don't know if you've ever watched, like, even just some of the girls at the high school, man, they spike the ball, and I'm like, oh, like, I couldn't imagine my face being right there. So somebody's about to get hit in the face with a, with a 30, 50-mile-an-hour volleyball. I don't know how fast they hit them. And so things are going to start getting a little violent, and people are going to start going, huh, like, I don't really know what to do. And pray to God we don't have a bowler in the room who decides to just start humming this thing down the concrete? Because what's going to happen to your ankles, right? Here's what I can promise you. At some point in the middle of this game, what you're going to do, because a lot of people are starting to make up their own rules, and you're not, you're like, oh, okay, something's got to change. So you're going to look up to us and go, what are we doing? Right? Why are we here? You called us here. You put us in this room and put these implements here, and you're just letting us destroy each other? It's so funny how in life, 
it's often the same concept that we have to find ourselves in this place of self-destruction before we finally look up to God and go, what am I doing here? Why did you put me here? And what's my reason? And so what do we start doing? What should we start doing? We should start looking for truth. We should start looking for order and for rules. And it's funny how in most cases you start talking law and you start talking rules. You're like, hey, I don't like any of that stuff, right? I don't need somebody to tell me how to live my life. Well, that's only until someone far more powerful comes along and decides they're going to start doing what they want to do and there's nothing you can do about it. Suddenly we're wanting rules and we're wanting law really quickly at that point. And for some of you guys, listen, I'm just going to say this, man. Some of you understand what I'm saying like to a heart level because you have really destroyed yourself to some pretty, uh, pretty far lines, right? You're like, man, I know what happens when, I'm in, when, I, when I've got the sticks, right? When I'm the one steering, I know where I end up. And so you're all about it, man. Share some truth with me, please, so I know what I'm doing. Others of you, you're like, no, I'm the moralist. I, I, you know, I, I don't need someone to give me more instruction in life, but let me tell you this right now. There's nobody in this room, including myself, who is entirely moralist to the point in which God created us. In other words, here's what you do, right? God creates, he gives us purpose, he gives us reason, he gives us truth, he gives us rule, and what we do, if you're the moralist in the room, right, you're the one who wants to be pure and good, you'll run with it for a while, but eventually there's gonna be something that you want that you know God isn't cool with. But at that point, you're willing to change the rules. You go, well, God, I'm, I'm good with everything to this point, but this one area in my life, I don't really want you to touch. I want to deal with this thing the way I want to deal with it, and you don't get much say in that. And what ends up happening is that thing will be your ruin. We're in this series uh, delivered, and... and what we're talking about today is we're talking about truth. That God has given to us the gift of truth. And it's funny because when you think about truth, a lot of us, you, you think truth and teaching and rules and law, and it seems almost like nebulous or maybe just kind of different, but it's really not in reality. I often think about Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, right, one of the, the most Rich passages of the entire scriptures, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And at the end of chapter 7, after Jesus finishes this sermon, he closes up with a really short parable, ultimately paraphrased like this. Those of you who hear my teaching and obey it, you'll be like the person who built their house on the bedrock. So when the storms of life come, your house stands. But for those who hear my teaching and don't obey it, you'll be like the person who built your house on the sand, a shifting foundation. And when the storms of life come, your house will collapse. And I'll be honest, the passage isn't just talking about the, the storms of life, but also the eternal judgment. 
That if, you're, if your life is not built upon the rock, you won't stand in the judgment. That's Psalms 1. And so here's what I want to do. I want to lay out the big idea starting out, and then I'll defend it. Big idea is this, very simple. Without truth, there is no freedom. Without truth, there is no freedom. And I'm going to go ahead and uh, give you a passage to back that up so that you know that I'm not making it up. Michelle Pope doesn't like it when I just say things without saying that Scripture backs it up. So let me back it up really quickly. Uh, John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. John says this. He says, Jesus said to the people who believed him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Right? So Jesus has a standard for his disciples. What's the standard? Obey and hold to my teaching. If you are my disciple, that's what you're going to do. You're going to hold to my teachings, obeying them. And he connects his teachings with truth. Because he says, if you do that, you will know the truth, and that truth will deliver you into freedom. You will be made free by knowing the truth and holding <clears throat> to the teachings of Jesus Christ. Now this is where in our culture this gets super contradictory. Maybe you haven't thought of it like this, but we live in what's called a pluralistic society. In other words, nobody can really lay, lay labels on what's true and what's not, right? What's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me, and that's just the way it works. But that inevitably does not work. It does not. The law of non-contradiction will flip that upside down, and here's what I mean. Uh, if a Muslim walks in the room right now and says, Jesus Christ is not the Son of God, he's only a prophet, and I say, as a Christian, no, Jesus Christ is the Son of God and a prophet, we are not both correct. And so what happens when my truth says that his truth is a lie? Is my truth still truth? What we tend to think in life, especially in our culture, is that what freedom really is, is a life where you pick what truth works for you, a life that's just without restraint, right? If you want true freedom in life, remove all restraints, and then you, you experience freedom for the first time. But let me give you an analogy. I like to fish, okay? If anyone follows me on Instagram, you know that. Imagine for a second that you came with me fishing one day, right? And I'm, I'm, I just think freedom is the absence of restraints. And so you're with me fishing, and I catch a bass, and I pull it, and I'm, ah, I take a picture with it, and I'm like, you know what, man? This fish is not free. There's so many restraints on the life of the fish, so here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna set this thing free, and I just throw it over on the shore. You'd be like, what are you doing? You can't leave the fish on the shore, it can't live. I go, well, no, yeah. But here's the thing, to say the fish has to live in the water, that's oppressive. That's restraints, man, I'm not into that stuff. Like, we need some freedom for this fish. Ah. And so now think for a second, am I freeing the fish or am I destroying the fish? I'm killing it. 
The fish needs to be in water to experience life and freedom and fullness. You don't need a life without restraints. You need life with the right restraints. True freedom is having the proper restraints in place. And when Jesus says, you will know the truth, you hold to my teachings, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He's saying, my teaching, my truth is the proper restraints for your life. It is life-giving. You will actually enter into your purpose. Because just like any vehicle, when someone builds it, they make an instruction manual. Why? So that you know how to use it. And Jesus, who created you, wrote the instruction manual for your being. You want to know how to live life freely? You live it according to what he's created us to be. And it's all found in his teachings. And, you know, it's really interesting to me. I remember... Uh, hearing a guy teach on something very similar to this, a guy named Ben Stewart, uh, and he, he read this verse, and I've never thought about this before, but he read Psalm 119, 151, and this is, so the, the verse goes like this. It says, but you are near, O Lord, and your commandments are true. And listen, like you guys, I'm going, yeah, the commandments of God are true, right? Whatever, like you don't really think about it until... You put it into perspective. And he said, now think about this. So let's say that I walked in the room and I said, all right, guys, you're all seated in your chairs. Stand up and jump. And all of you just said, true. I'd be like, what? No, I'm not asking for you to confirm my statement. I'm saying jump, right? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to say, oh God, your commandments are true but you have to understand what he's ultimately saying. He's saying your commandments, your teachings, your rules, your law is truth. It is reality. In other words, the way that things are are in accordance with how you created them. It's true that if I jump off that balcony, I will likely break my ankles because I'm 225 pounds and that concrete is hard as a rock. And it is true that if you choose to disobey the commandments of God throughout your life, you will face the destruction that comes along with it. Not because God is oppressive, but because he has laid out an order of life in which you are choosing to ignore to create your own order. And it's destructive. It would be, going, it would be like going to the moon in an astronaut suit and they're just going, you know what, I'm going to take this thing off. You weren't created for that, my friend. And in the same way, you weren't created for anything in this world. You were created for him. God's word is true reality. And I would argue that that's the exact reason that Jesus came and his biggest priority was teaching it. It's funny. You read, I, I remember catching on to this. In the Gospel of Mark, you get to the, to the end of chapter 1 in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has just stayed up almost all night healing hundreds upon hundreds of people miraculously, right? And then it says he gets up early the next morning, everybody's still in bed, and he goes off by himself to be with the Father. He just goes off to pray. 
And eventually Peter gets up and all, everybody wakes up and Peter's like, man, where is he? So he goes to search for him. Peter finds Jesus off by himself. And he's like, Lord, what are you doing? All these people are looking for you. We have a super successful healing ministry going and you're off over here by yourself. Let's get back over here, man. And you know, what, you know how Jesus responds? He says, we need to go to the next town over so I can teach them about the kingdom because that's why I came here. Yeah, he healed because he loves people. But healing was not his primary ministry in his earthly life. It was teaching about the kingdom of heaven. It's about teaching the truth of God so that people know what real life is. But if you know the story of Jesus, you know what ends up happening to him. Right? In the end of his life, what happens? He's standing before Pontius Pilate and all the people that he had been healing and teaching and instructing. And Pontius has two people in front of him. He has Jesus and he has Barabbas, a known criminal. And Pontius Pilate talks to the crowd. He says, what, do you, what would you have me do? Who do you want me to release? He says, they say, release Barabbas, release the rebel. Well, then what do you want me to do with Jesus? What do they shout out? Crucify him. Kill him. Get him out of here. Why? Because that dude is conflicting with the way that we want to live our lives. And it's funny because even if you go through the Old Testament to the prophets, these, these people who God had, had given his voice to, his own words, because all the people of God had gone astray and worshipped idols and started destroying themselves. And God sending people saying, listen to me, come back because you're going to destroy yourself. You don't know what you're doing. And what did they do? They killed the prophets. Because within us, there's this nature that really hates truth. And again, some of you, you're like, no, Daniel, I'm the moralist. I don't hate truth. To a certain degree, you don't. Until it interferes with something that you love more than you love God. And now the hostility begins. And some of you are going, well, I don't know what that is. Well, what's the first thing that's coming to mind? What's the first thing you're wanting to defend right now? We have a, we have a serious abuse of God's truth. It's funny, in Romans chapter 1, uh, you know, this famous verse in Romans 1 verse 20, where Paul ultimately says that all of the creation leaves us without excuse because through the creation we can see the invisible attributes of God. And we, we use that verse and we go, see, God's displayed himself to all. Everyone's without excuse. And that's true. But you have to understand the point that Paul's making. Paul's not just saying creation tells of the glory of God. He continues on after that verse. That's just a single sentence. And what he says is he explains that even though we know him, even though it's evident what we should see through the creation, there's something adulterous in us. We don't want him. We want everything else other than him. And it gets to the point in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. Paul says this. He says, they, being us, 
traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. We have the whole thing in order. God's given us all the truth that we need. But what we do instead is we change the character of God to better fit what we really want. And you know what that looks like in a lot of our lives who are in the church, myself included? That looks like looking at a Bible verse and maybe saying, well, no, what that means to me is, or, well, I don't believe that Jesus is really like that. I think he's like this. Or I think, you know, that was the first century how they did things like that, but now we're in the 21st century, and for some reason that means God changed. You see, this is where things do start getting really touchy. So we need to ask ourselves a question, listen, because I think this removes the offense of it. At least for me, it does. Why are we so hostile? What is our problem with the commandments of God? Why do we want to trade in the true God for a God that we would rather worship? It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. If you know the story, God created Adam and Eve puts them in the garden, right? And let me set the context. We'll be in verse 5. Uh, in the, uh, according to the story, Adam and Eve are kind of hanging out in the garden. Everything's going well. And the serpent or the devil or Satan comes along. And this is where people start to go, okay, we're going to talk some mythology for a second. Uh, but let's, let's figure out where the connection lies and see if this really fits with mythology or if we seem to think it still has carried on into the 21st century. Uh, the serpent comes along, he's beguiling, he's a liar, a deceiver, and ultimately what he does, he comes to the woman, he says, hey, uh, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree of the garden? None of them? And the woman knows the commandment, so she defends it. She's like, no, that's not what he said. He said we could eat from any tree of the garden except one. And if we ate from that tree, then we would die. She defends the command, but she just wasn't ready for what was next. Because this is what Satan does. Listen to what he says. You won't die. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. You know what he's saying? Eating, it's not going to kill you. That's not really what God meant. He acts like that sometimes, but that's not really what he meant. God just knows that when you eat of that fruit, you'll be like him. You'll be your own God. You'll get your own throne, and you'll be able to sit up against him, and you'll be able to decide for yourself what right or wrong is. Sound familiar? How often do we swear, even though we might not admit it, but by the actions and choices of our lives, do we swear that we know better than what God has told us to do? What he has made evident in his word. Listen, I work in youth ministry. I've heard every excuse in the book, especially when it comes to parenting. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it says honor thy mother and father. 
But that's only if they're obeying Jesus. I'm like, hey, you need to chill with that. You don't get, you don't get to take the Bible and twist it in your own little meaning. That's not how it works, right? Parents are like, yes, thank you. What ends up happening, what has happened to us, what has happened to every single person born from the seed of man since Adam and Eve is this same virus has been passed down to where what we do is we get to this point where we go, okay, God, yes, good, yes, good, yes, good, doesn't fit what I like, doesn't really help my reputations, not going to help my career, uh, I don't really like that, that's not as fun. And so we start to bend it around to what best suits us, and then what we do is we take the truth of God and we twist it and suppress it down with our own unrighteousness by picking what we think is better than what God said. Every one of us in this room, It's what Paul calls in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, dead in sin. That every one of us born dead in sin. Meaning we have some idea of right or wrong. But it's not for the glory of God. It's just for conscience sake. And I would even say for some of us, in here, let's say maybe you're in the room and you're going, you know what, I choose not to believe the Bible anyway, so Daniel, everything you say, I don't care, right? I believe that God is great and he's this and he's that, and I'm just going to choose this God that I've created in my mind, and I'm going to worship him. Let me go ahead and say this. No matter what, here's what every human knows instinctively. There will be a judgment, and here's how I know that you know that, because we all fear death to some degree. Because there's something that follows death that we don't quite comprehend. There will be a judgment. We all, we all understand that. Now let's say you just choose to ignore the Bible. You don't like it. Well, you still do have a conscience, right? You still know right, right from wrong to a degree. And so what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones would say, he said, this is what the judgment would be like for you. Imagine for a second that when you were born, an invisible tape recorder was put around your neck. And for your entire life, it only recorded when you said how someone else ought to live their life. That's it. It's the only things it picked up is how someone else ought to live their life. Anytime you said it, records it. Now, the day of judgment comes, you come before your, your self-created God, right? He won't even need to pull out the commandments. You wanted to ignore him, he won't even need to pull him out. You know what he'll do? He'll get that recorder back and he'll play it right in front of your face. And he's going to show you that you don't even live up to your own standard. Which means you failed your own self-created God. Much less the God of heaven. Here's what we have to admit. There is something in us that is depraved. Something in us that hates truth. Something in us that says, I would rather cling to this thing than the God of heaven. It's what the Bible would call sin, depravity. We choose sin over God, and therefore our lives are out of order. Our lives are out of order. And for a lot of you guys, as I've already mentioned, I'd say everybody in the room, you've probably at least come to one or two places in life where you go, man, I would love to go back and change this one thing because it kind of left a path of destruction in there, right? 
And what you're not realizing, the reason that happened is because your life is out of order. At some degree, you chose, I'm not going to follow what was laid out. But I'll make my own rules for this one particular circumstance. And to some degree or another, it has destroyed you. Our own choosing always will. And so let's go back to our forefathers for a second. What in the world did God do, right? Adam and Eve sinned against him. What did he do? They broke the order. Did he come in and go, all right, guys, you messed up. I gave you one rule. You couldn't keep it. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you 10 rules. And I'm going to go for a little bit. And I'm going to come back. And things better be fixed. Is that what he did? Did he come and say, here's some rules. Now fix yourselves. No. You go to Genesis 3.15, he does something utterly different. He promises a redeemer. Guys, y'all broke it, but I'm going to fix it. He says, there's going to be one who comes from the seed of the woman, not from the seed of man. That's important. One will come from the seed of the woman, born of a virgin. And there will be hostility between him and the serpent. And the serpent will bruise his heel. But he'll crush the serpent's head. He'll crush the power of the serpent. And it's interesting because following that, yes, God gave law, right? If you know your Old Testament, following, following the fall of, of man came the commandments and all the various things. Why? So that you might be able to fix it? No. So that you'd understand there's something horribly wrong with you and you need someone to fix it. Why did he give you law, according to Romans 3, 19 and 20? So that you know you're a sinner and you need a savior. The law was given so that we would await the redeemer. And so the appointed one comes. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, John says this. He says, the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. The Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. What were the works of the devil? To sow in sin, rebellion, and separation. To where we would be disconnected from the God who created us for himself. So we would miss life and only suffer death and destruction and suffering. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And so what you see is that the Son of God appears, the one born of the virgin, born of the seed of woman, shows up and he crushes the head of the serpent. But how does he do it? He had to have his heel bruised. He had to get struck. He had to get bit. The venom had to enter his veins. And it killed him. How did Jesus crush the head of the serpent? Jesus took upon himself all of our disorder, all of our chaos, all of our rebellion against God, all of our sin, and he suffered all of the destruction we should suffer for it. Right? 
It was in God's ordained plan. According to 1 Peter chapter 3, God ordained this from before the foundation of the world. He said, you know what? Human beings are going to mess everything up, and I'm going to send a redeemer. Why? Because you would never know love to the degree you know it unless you see the Son of God crucified on your behalf. The ultimate truth is that God loves you so much that he would give his only son so that you could have eternal life and not perish. But do you know it cost the Son of God perishing so that you could have it? Our disorder, our hatred for truth separated us from the source of truth itself. And we should be separated forever because we don't like his truth. But what's funny is throughout the history of every human being on earth, except one, you've never heard anyone cry out that they've been separated from God. But Christ on the cross cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken because you went your own path. You chose to disconnect from God. And Jesus came in and took the penalty so that you could be reconciled. And so all of the justice of God poured onto the head of Christ. And so now it's only in Christ that we're aligned with God's truth and we find freedom. Right? Because it's only through Christ that we're reconciled to the Father, who is true. And so then what do we do about our lives? Okay, Christ suffered the penalty for sin, but what does that mean for the application of my life? Well, let me say this. Remember, Jesus didn't just come to pay the penalty for your sin. He came to destroy the works of the devil. Right? The devil's works in you are your rebellion against him. And what Jesus has come to do is though you were born in full and utter rebellion, hostility toward God, not wanting to submit to him, he has come in once we believe Jesus as Lord and Savior, he comes in and he begins to reverse the work of the devil in our lives. One of my favorite verses, this, is, this has been my testimony verse since the moment I realized it because I was a heathen, right? Until one day I was on a motorcycle and I was born again. No preaching, no music, just the Spirit of God came on me and changed everything. And two years after he did that, after I had been walking with Christ for two years, not knowing what in the world took place in my life, I came across this verse. God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 36, he says this, And I, God, will give you a new heart, and I will put my Spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart, and I will give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit within you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. What does he do? Does he just come to be an example of truth? If he did, every one of us in this room are damned. Do you understand how cruel of a joke that would be if Jesus just came to be an example of what good life looks like? because we all fail so miserably. But instead, he came to take upon himself our rebellion, to make us in right standing with God, 
but then make God now accessible to us, to reconcile us to him even in this life that we have received the spirit of God through Jesus who causes us to walk in his statutes and to carefully obey his ordinances. In other words, to walk in his teachings. And if you hold to my teachings, you will know the truth and the truth will what? Set you free. It's only in Christ you experience true life because Christ restores our original purpose. And so let me close. Uh, there's a certain style of reading that I have, and I only tell you this to maybe for some of you, you need the math, right? You need the breakdown to kind of see uh, how accessible this is. I'm not saying do what I do. I'm just saying this works. Uh, one day, I, I was really just infatuated with the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I thought, I wonder how long it would take to read all four Gospels if you read three chapters a day. And so I started, I, I, I crunched, I counted how many chapters there were in all four Gospels, and I divided it, and it would take one month to read all four Gospels if you read three chapters a day, one month. So then I thought to myself, how awesome would it be if I just read all four Gospels in a month, and then the next month I just started over? And I just kept doing that. In one year, you will have read all four Gospels 12 times. And I just think Dylan McPeak wanted me to use him as an example, and I will. Dylan and I talk all the time, right? And when we're talking about life circumstances and things that get hard, Dylan is always like, oh, man, well, the weekend said, boom, boom. He starts spitting lyrics at me, right? And he's got, like, every song memorized because his mind is saturated in those lyrics. Now, imagine for a second if your mind was saturated in Scripture, in the teachings of Christ. Right? I'm not saying read the Bible so that you can be a good Christian. I'm not saying read the Bible because if not, God's going to be mad at you. If you're believing Christ, all of God's anger for your disobedience is satisfied. He's no longer mad. But if you want instruction, if you want guidance, if you want truth, if you want something saturating and helping your choices in life, Fill your mind with the thoughts of Christ. Three chapters a day, all four Gospels in a month. Three chapters a day out of the Bible, you read the whole thing in a year. It's far easier than we think to get the Scriptures in. The question is, are you yearning for His truth? Do you want it? That's the ultimate question. And so I would encourage you guys, even if you don't like that reading plan, there's a million of them online. Get in the word. We're to be hungering for it. But let me lastly remind you, Psalm 119, 105 says this. It says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And that is true. Listen to me. God's word will guide your choices in the right path. It will. But also know this. There's a spiritual path for you that's not just life application, everyday steps. And that path should be straight to the cross of Calvary. And so if you're reading through the scriptures and it's not simultaneously pointing you to proper life choices, but also pointing you to Christ crucified on your behalf, you're not reading it clearly. You're not reading it rightly. All of the scriptures point to the Messiah who came to pay the debt for our sins. 
And when we behold him, we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. So praise God that he gave us the gift of truth in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning, and I thank you so much for the opportunity to teach this, and I thank you so much for everybody in this room. Your word says that the dice are cast, and yet the outcome is yours, and so there's no such thing as a random person in this room. But Father, I pray before any applicable teaching does anything, that the gospel changes our hearts, that the good news of a savior, of a redeemer, who comes not just to give us an example of teaching, but who comes to change our hearts in alignment with your truth, that we would yearn for it. I pray that be the first thing. Lord, you told us that unless we're born again, we cannot even see the kingdom of heaven. So we need your spirit. We need the new birth. So be glorified, Lord. And may the lamb who was slain receive the reward for his suffering. Amen. You guys have a great week.